Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. Happy Friday to all of you. You know, I find it hard to believe that we are now at the end of another uh, podcast series topic. But this has been a great journey, to say the least. But then again, all of the topics that have been discussed have been great journeys. Because all of you who have been um, ardent listeners for some time have walked away learning something new that you did not know before and have more than likely been sharing that information with countless other people whom are passionate about history or just want to learn more because that's the key to understanding not only the past but how we take that information from the past and use it in the future. You know, I'm sure some of you are wondering how do we end this um, book topic, being November's Fury, the Deadly Great Lakes Hurricane of 1913? What else could we talk about that has not already been discussed? Well, we do have a lot of ground to cover in this uh, epilogue, but it, will well be, but it will certainly be well worth the while. We're going to learn in this uh, epilogue about uh, ships that um, did founder along Lake Huron's waters, and although in the previous uh, podcast segment we did learn about two of those vessels that were um, discovered, one being in the 1980s, being the Regina, and in 2000, the Wexford, we have to wonder, okay, that whenever a ship sinks, will the ship ever be found again? Well, history has shown that, um, that even if it has taken decades to locate a vessel, that the impossible does somehow always become possible. So let's fasten our seatbelts and let's learn whatever there is left to learn in this final segment of November's Fury, the Deadly Great Lakes Hurricane of 1913. Our leadoff question is going to be the following. Is it important for sailors to remember stories and events of ships of shipwrecks past so that future generations will always be aware of those whom survived and perished. Well, do you think it's fair to say that it ought to be important for sailors to remember stories and events of shipwrecks past? Sure, but isn't it fair to say that those uh, sailors have an obligation to um, share those stories even if they are painful, but by doing so, it will give future generations a better sense of um, respect and understanding of the sacrifices that those um, whom went before made. So, the answer ought to be yes. Each generation of Great Lakes watermen have an obligation to tell stories involving shipwrecks no matter how far back they happened. So in other words, you know, if if one was um, alive and old enough to have remembered when the Edmund Fitzgerald sank and where they were when he or she learned the um, sad news of what had happened on the night of November 10th, 1975, given that that was almost 47 years ago, it is important to keep the, the memory of those whom uh, perished on Lake Superior's waters that night, being 29 men, it's important to keep their spirits alive. And for the um, 
and for those loved ones whom lost, whether it was a father, an uncle, a brother, nephew, cousin, they must do everything they can to keep their, those um, deceased um, family member spirits alive. Sure, talking about the past, like losing a loved one in a shipwreck, can be painful. But at the same time, knowing that, okay, if your loved ones are resting peacefully at the bottom of Lake Superior's floor, for example, that should be some comfort knowing that they haven't been forgotten and that uh, God is looking after them. Because as Gordon Lightfoot said in his song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? What it just simply means is that, um, you know, oftentimes we think of waves, you know, like one or two just coming by and that's it. But when the storms become bad and the waves are intensifying at such epic uh, proportion sizes, like 30 to 50 feet, rogue waves, then one has to wonder, when will the suffering end? When will those men be able to find light at the end of the tunnel? Sadly, they didn't. The light went out of sight and came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. So, and for those whom were not on the Fitzgerald, and if they were out on the waters on the night on that night of November 10th, 1975, they have an obligation to tell future generations of um, of those uh, young people whom are wanting to um, become a, a waterman or a, you know or have some kind of a work um, position along the waters. They need to be reminded. It's just part of. Um, it's just a part of life. It's uh, it's something that just must not be taken for granted, and it must be something that should not be forgotten. So when a ship uh, perishes into the depths of a Great Lakes floor, she takes many things, or rather I should say variables, that become open for endless theory debates, such as, you know, how did the ship sink? And, and if the ship did sink, which it, you know, okay, if it did, did everything else that went down with it stay intact? In other words, if the ship if the ship were to sink, did the ship um, sink where it ended up uh, being dangled upside down, or did it uh, sink where it ended up hitting the floor at a um, at an uneven position where it lied crooked? We don't know. But if we are that enthusiastic about wanting to know the truth then perhaps take part in an underwater rescue dive operation. Even if you're not a, a diver or, a, or a maritime archaeologist, get yourself acquainted with those whom are, and perhaps those connections will help lead to uh, not only keeping the um, spirit of a ship alive, but the, uh, but the overall legacy Stories of survival and tragedy are always intertwined, but for those whom live and work along Great Lakes waters, they go about constantly making it a priority to remind and share with younger generations what happened in 1913, given that no other storm since then rivaled what happened over a four-day course from November 7th to the 10th. Basically, that, that storm of 1913, it would be fair to say, was a storm for the ages, Historians know that there have been at least nine major storms along the Great Lakes waters 
that are in a category onto their own. And while each of those nine um, storms had stories to tell, most historians will say that the storm of 1913 was probably the deadliest. The other storms, it would be fair to say, were storms that happened within a one to two day span. This one being four days was just um, beyond epic proportions. And it would be fair to say that for those whom are uh, retired along the Great Lakes waters, more than likely had parents or had a father, an uncle, or even a great uncle whom probably lost their lives along the, uh, along the waters of 1913. So for them, yes, it would be important to, uh, to share uh, the stories and if those uh, individuals have passed on, then obviously it's up to the future generation to carry on the, um, the legacy. Now, during the evening of November 9th, it was determined that wind gusts exceeded over 80 miles an hour, with waves consistently hovering, listen to this folks, waves consistently hovering around 36 feet along Lake Huron's southern and western location. I cannot imagine seeing waves hovering over 30 feet, getting near 40 feet. That is, um, well, I mean, if you have been a waterman all your life, maybe you wouldn't know any better. But when you see rogue waves, it's a huge uh, step back. You're used to choppy waves. You're used to um, to waves that can throw a curveball. But when you get to these rogue waves, they they leave all kinds of punches Punches that don't allow you to recover. And what I mean by not, not allowing you to recover is that you don't get long-term to recover. Everything happens so quickly that that means of survival is short, depending on just how bad uh, the boats, uh, just depending on the, the damage that the boat or the vessels themselves sustain. So... Um, Yes, we've said, we've learned now that um, on the evening of November 9th, it was determined that wind gusts did exceed over 80 miles an hour, with waves consistently hovering around 36 feet along Lake Huron's southern and western location ends. This weather activity remained a stable fixture, sadly, for six straight hours into the night, which in the end led to eight ships and 187 lives lost. You know, we, we've already learned about those eight ships. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk about some of them um, here shortly that were not um, that have been mentioned briefly, but um, ought to um, have a little bit more of a um, focus on. The way I see it is that eight ships and 187 lives lost. You do the math, that's, um, that's roughly about 23.4 uh, um, lives lost per ship. That's a lot of men, um, lot, a lot of um, crewmen um, who have not only perished, but you think about how families and how their lives have now been changed forever. The 1913 hurricane to this day, as I said earlier, and I'll say it again here, remains the deadliest and most powerful natural disaster to have ever wreaked havoc along the Great Lakes. Besides losing 250 or more people to the storm, 
Remember, about 187 lives were lost on Lake Huron. The shipping industry was obviously hit the hardest, considering 19 ships were destroyed and another 19 were left stranded. Think about it. 19 times 2, 38, folks. 38 into 2, 19. Half of the 38 ships are destroyed and another 19 are stranded. Nearly About 1 million in cargo, most notably from commodities like coal, iron ore, and grain, Estimate losses were around 68,300 tons of natural resources lost. It's not like we can just call up someone and say, oh, can you uh, get a replacement order for us? That's not how it works. Yes, it's sad enough that lives are lost, but when cargo is lost too, that obviously doesn't make the shipping companies happy because they are <laughs> going to be operating in the red even more. But hey, we can't control Mother Nature. But sadly, in 1913, there are um, plenty of uh, people out there whom have this um, philosophy that, well, the cargo must be delivered without fail. And if these people can't do their job, their replacements are, are, are called away. Let's keep in mind that there were people whom were ignorant in, this, uh, in the shipping profession even in 1913. It didn't make it right, but it existed. What is fundamental, or rather I should say, what is fundamentally different about Great Lakes waves versus ocean waves? And I have no doubts that many of you all have been wondering for some time about, about just how and why there are rogue waves along Great Lakes waters. And when they do occur, why is it that they're so powerful? Well, I'm here to tell you all that information. I, I did a little research on it. I think we ought to get this fact straight. For starters, all five Great Lakes are large. Superior is the biggest. You could fit the other four Great Lakes into Lake Superior. It turns out that Lake Erie is the shallowest of them all. However, even though they are large, this does mean that there is easier ability behind producing what is called uh, wind fetches. I believe we met, mentioned something from an earlier podcast segment a, a good while back about fetch, and also this is a good refresher here. Wind fetches pertain to the length of water per a particular wind. What does that mean? A particular, like a particular wind direction. So the length of water per a particular wind that, is, that has blown without no interference, okay? So when a wave is moving, in order for a wave to move without interference, there has to be a particular wind that, um, that still remains an, a constant variable. But this... Um, this um, fetch has to be um, one that has been set in motion and what I mean by no interference meaning that the um, wave itself has moved over many or rather I should say hundreds of miles or the fetch rather has moved many and or hundreds of miles enabling the huge waves to form so 
there we have it, folks. The wind fetches being the length of water per particular wind that has blown without any interference. More often than not, um, there will be some form of outside interference that will break apart um, the, the overall wind fetch. But when that doesn't happen, it becomes a unique, um, it becomes something unique. But in the case of um, when it comes to uh, something unexpected, like um, being able to produce huge waves, that can be scary. Whereas ocean waves have more room for maneuvering. Isn't it fair to say that ocean waves have more room for, for maneuvering? Great Lakes waves are opposite, largely because they travel very close together. And when their fury unleashes, recovery time is short and difficult. Isn't it fair to say that when you get 30, 40, and 50 foot waves coming over um, the bow or the stern of your ship, that recovery time is not going to be to your advantage? Yeah. Hence, this is where we get what's called the three sisters waves. The first two waves are following one another very close. And then that third wave becomes the true killer, given its height surpasses the first two waves' heights combined that came prior to. So, when, when these massive waves evolve on Great Lakes waters, remember it's because Great Lakes waters, or rather the waves along Great Lakes waters, don't have a whole lot of room for maneuvering, whereas ocean waves do. Although uh, the U.S. Weather Bureau, in my opinion, of course, this is just my opinion. We've uh, learned some interesting things about the Weather Bureau, most notably that interesting relationship they've had with the uh, shipping industry, and of course, learning how the shipping industry wanted to blame the Weather Bureau. Although the, the U.S. Weather Bureau, in my opinion, made every good faith effort to warn all ships of the impending storm dangers lying ahead through, lying ahead through um, using such means as eight by eight storm flags. Uh, the pennants for wind direction, lanterns at night, when you had a red a lantern with the red light on, that meant um, with the gale warning, with the white light meant indicated the uh, direction at which the uh, wind was blowing, to posting up-to-date weather bulletins. One element that wasn't available in 1913 for weather predictions, or rather for weather predicting, was none other than determining wind direction. Wind direction and knowing its overall movements is a primary factor behind helping ships completely avoid to modifying their current situations in the midst of an impending or existing storm. Well, you know, I'm sure there will be those who would blame the U.S. Weather Bureau for not doing a good enough job. But, but the reason why I feel as though they did a good job was because they did everything there was that was available to them in getting the shipping companies as well as the um, ship's captains and their crews to realize that, hey, you may think it's safe to go out now, but in a couple of hours or by midday, you're going to wish you hadn't gone out. Because remember, once you get out into the middle of the water, good luck seeking shelter. 
It's not like, you know, it's not like putting a car in reverse and saying, oh, let's just go on home and uh, try this another day. Once you're out in the middle of the water and a storm is brewing, it's just a matter of time before uh, the inevitable can happen. As I've said before, and I'd say it again, uh, nothing is ever certain when it comes to the month of November, especially when the skies of November turn gloomy. Four of the five Great Lakes endured major shipwrecks, with the exception of which one, folks? Lake Ontario. The majority of the ships lost and stranded were along Lake Huron's, were along Lake Huron. The captains to the ships stranded reported seeing waves reach up to 35 feet in height. Nearly Listen to this, folks. Nearly uh, three million was lost for all sunken vessels. Three million dollars. That's uh, for in nineteen thirteen um, time. That's that was a lot of money in terms of lost uh, due to sunken vessels. Now we've um, come to realize, or um, already know by now, that come the start of the twentieth century. A new type of uh, vessel is um, has made its presence along Great Lakes waters, being those straight-decker ships. I have a question for you all that uh, should um, arouse some um, some uh, a- a- attention. Here we go. Uh, given straight-decker ships had become the new standard for transporting large quantities, large cargo quantities, I should say, by the start of the 20th century. What feature became more vulnerable to storms? Okay, these straight deckers, folks, where is their cargo going? Is their cargo being placed below the main uh, part of the uh, bow or the main part of the stern, or is it right in the middle? It's all in the middle. Is that a good thing? Uh, Perhaps, because a bigger cargo hold means that you can um, store more cargo. However, there is a disadvantage. Well, on one hand, it's important to secure your cargo hold with hatch covers, and not just secure them with hatch covers, but by placing clamps on them. And the tighter the clamps are, then the less likely that if water um, washes on deck, whether it's just um, you know a little basic little um, wave splash, or if it's a 20 to 30 foot wave, if the clamps are tightened down, then the less, then there might be a likelihood that the cargo hold might be spared, but at the same time, if the conditions are right, it's fair game to say that anything's possible. However, um, the hatch covers, to me, uh, that's the answer being the hatch covers, the hatch covers, um, the hatch covers were are, are unique because um, sometimes there were many of instances uh, prior to and going into 1913 where ship captains um, did not um, go with the flow in terms of um, upgrading to the most up-to-date uh, technology involving hatch covers. Some captains, or rather I should say a fair number of them, uh, were using uh, hatch covers that met only the most basic or minimum of standards. Existing hatches, 
I should say, hatches that had been around, say, for 10 years or more. I'm not sure what the average life expectancy of a hatch cover would have been, but I'm just going to use, for example, if you have a hatch cover, say, that was 10 years old, existing hatches already uh, fastened onto vessels had more than likely endured previous beatings along trips with rough waters. What does this all mean? Well, it means greater vulnerability to storms whose shear forces alone could take over cargo hold and produce flooding so severe, resulting in ships grounding, splitting, or worse, sinking. So if you are not updating your ships with the most um, up-to-date technology in terms of uh, getting better hatch covers, then you might be ex you might be putting your cargo holds at risk. But to make matters more interesting, large hatches, or rather more hatches themselves, meant what? Well, it, the more hatches you have on your vessel, it ought to mean that the captain and his crew should be spending more time overseeing all cargo, be evenly leveled, or rather I should say be evenly distributed, because if cargo is not evenly leveled, what it means is that uneven cargo levels are the equivalent to rapid, more rapid um, occurrences of uh, vessels shifting. That is, they are uh, moving along the water and the cargo becomes um, loose to where uh, cargo damaged while ship is in transit. What it means is that the ship is vulnerable. It's vulnerable to a whole host of things. Say, it could be vulnerable to grounding. It could be vulnerable most of, most of all to sinking. Ships have sunk, folks, not only because of ele the elements of Mother Nature, but in some instances, ships have sunk because cargo was not... Uh, evenly distributed. Some historians think the Edmund Fitzgerald, one of the reasons, one of the factors behind her sinking could have been that she was loaded, loaded very, very heav heavily with cargo. In other words, she had a threshold, but it, but um, the crew exceeded the threshold, not just, not just that one time that, that led to her sinking on the night of November 10th, 1975, but she was constantly hauling records for uh, tonnage in terms of how much uh, cargo was being uh, carried or transported. But if you exceed your threshold, then more than likely there's going to be numerous wears and tears in the uh, cargo hold to where it's just a matter of time before the ship uh, founders and ultimately sinks. How many of the eight ships that foundered along Lake, Huron, along Lake Huron lost between 25 to 30 crew people? Five. The Hydras lost 25 crewmen, whereas ships from the Isaac M. Scott, the Charles S. Price, the John A. McGean, and the Argus each lost 28 crew personnel. The James Caruthers lost 22 of her people on Lake Huron, whereas the Regina and the Wexford both lost 20 crewmen. Staggering numbers, uh, to say the least. And um, 
it's just one of those things that, um, you know, nobody should ever um, take for granted in terms of uh, what can happen when, um, when, when we don't um, respect uh, Mother Nature. The majority of the dead crewmen's bodies were found along the Canadian shores of southern Lake Huron, whereas the lost ships consisted of some of the newest and biggest ships along Great Lakes waters. Lake Superior saw two ships sink, with losses exceeding over 15 crew people, the Henry B. Smith at 23 and the Leaf Field at 18. Let's uh, focus on some of the uh, vessels that um, sunk along um, Lake Huron's um, southern shore in Canada. What makes the Charles S. Price's story unique? Although she got caught up in the deadly storm and lost many of her crew, a bystander, or rather I should say a group of bystanders, spotted the vessel on Monday, November 10th, with her bow pointing above water and the stern pointing, or rather, I should say, facing below. There were, there were talks about getting a, um, an uh, not just an investigation, but a mission to try to, to locate the ship up close. However, there was not a uh, definitive um, confirmation because there were some who assumed that the uh, ship that was... Um, the ship whose bow was pointing above water may have been the Regina. But shortly afterwards, sources confirmed the vessel was, in fact, the Charles S. Price, which eventually sank one week after the infamous storm subsided on November 17th. Uh, were the SS Hydrus and Argus sister ships? Yes, both were uh, steel-hulled freighters, whom frequently transported goods like coal to iron ore. They were um, young ships. Um, they were not even 15 years old in service. They were between um, 8 to 10 years in service. The Argus on November 9th, just before sinking, was going north into Lake Huron with coal. But as she got 13 miles north of Point O'Barks, her, her fate was sealed when she broke in two, and sank with all 25 men aboard. What about the Argus? Did um, Has the Argus been discovered since 1913? It turns out she was. Almost 60 years after she sank, the Argus's remains were discovered in 1972, 50 years ago, by diver Dick Race. The wreckage of the Argus lies upside down in roughly 250 feet of water. And what do you know, seven years later, or rather I should say seven, not seven years later after 1972, but seven years prior to 2022, in, in 2015, the Argus's sister, the SS Hydrus, was discovered 102 years after she sank by David Trotter and a team of shipwreck hunters. The SS Hydrus is in over 160 feet of water and is engulfed with zebra mussels. Zebra mussels are an invasive species, 
I learned about the this uh, invasive species through having read a book called Pandora's Locks, the um, opening of the uh, St. Lawrence Seaway. It's one thing for the Great Lakes to all be uh, connected, because we have to keep in mind at one time the Great Lakes were not connected, with the exception of Erie and Ontario. But at one time, uh, Michigan, Huron, and Superior were not. Technology had changed all that, and on one hand, maybe that was not a bad thing, but long story short, uh, back in the late 80s, there was an incident that occurred in Lake Erie in uh, Monroe, Michigan, which is uh, right along the Michigan-Ohio line, not far from Toledo, Ohio. Well, it turns out that um, zebra mussels, I want to say it was, they had infiltrated the city's water system and it got so bad folks to where the city was put on high alert and eventually over time the water crisis situation was it was modified but the problem was that the zebra mussels had pretty much taken a hold of the city's water supply to where people could not even get access to getting water from their sink Parties were canceled. This was a, um, a national emergency. So these uh, zebra mussels have made their way into other um, Great Lakes waters. And so uh, the zebra mussels have, um, have pretty much uh, taken a hold of this ship. The ship still remains um, intact. Uh, it is standing upright. And despite the damage to its hull and the bow being twisted at a 45-degree angle from the rest of the ship. Believe it or not, the ship, the ship uh, itself, the ship's holds still consist of iron ore. In other words, the SS Hydrus's cargo holds still show um, or still possess um, quantities of iron ore. The pilot house remains intact including the ship's wheel and the engine room telegraph. This will be mentioned again towards the end, but I'll just say, it, I'll just tell you all now, the storm of 1913 led the U.S. Weather Bureau to implement better methods towards forecasting and faster communication with storm warnings. Sometimes it takes a sad um, incident like this, but at the same time it's up to... Um, people as individuals to learn from these mistakes and I think it would be wise if um, if other parties would not always be blaming the other party when they themselves have been given enough warnings about what is about to lie in store. You know the shipping companies have been around long enough you would think that even as a new century has dawned that maybe they would learn some things that are different than, say, 20 or 30 years before. But as I've said before, and I'd say it again, uh, shipping company officials have a mind of their own. It's probably fair to say that their motto is, well, it's either my way or the doorway. Sometimes that's not always a bad thing, but when it comes to ethical, uh, yeah, I guess you could say ethical or just um, a common sense notion of, hey, what's more important? Are my people's lives more important? 
Can this wait? I mean, commerce can be replaced. What about people's lives? They can't be replaced. This is a struggle. It's been a struggle. Maybe it's fair to say that this has been a struggle since 1679 when um, Robert LaSalle's ship, the Le Griffon, perished along Lake Erie's waters as um, the crewmen on that boat were departing back towards uh, Europe with all those fur, beaver fur pelts. Robert LaSalle was not on that mission, but I have no doubts that he knew plenty of people on the Le Griffon who lost their lives. So it's probably fair to say that the uh, struggle between safety and commerce has been in existence since 1679, given that uh, Robert LaSalle's vessel, the Le Griffon, made um, a first, maybe not the most successful first in Great Lakes history, but the the Le Griffon made history by being the by becoming the first ever sunken vessel along Great Lakes waters. Prior to the uh, 20th century beginning, had Congress enacted any legislation pertaining to maritime safety? Uh, the next set of questions are going to um, are going to give us a better understanding of what was taking place in terms of. Um, legislation on the federal level that um, that does have um, significance to what um, eventually happened in 1913 with this uh, storm. So the question, the question again before us is, prior to the 20th century beginning, had Congress enacted any legislation pertaining to maritime safety? Yes, the first piece of legislation can be traced back to 1838. 184 years ago, which required owners, or, and, or I should say masters of vessels, to seek two certificates from appointed inspectors and provide one of them to a customs official where licensure was obtained. Inspections were to be performed every 6 to 12 months. I'm beginning to wonder if the reason why this needs to be done is because for one people are moving out west and they're moving out west because of the Mississippi River all kinds of settlements are are, um, are on the rise in the Mississippi River um, uh, territory and a lot of that can be attributed to um, Robert for those of you who were with me when we talked about the fire of his genius uh, Robert Fulton and the American Dream those whom were going west into uh, what we now know as Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Arkansas, Missouri. How are they getting there? Well, if they're not getting there by horse and buggy, they're getting there by steamboat. And what people don't realize is that at one time, you didn't even have to have a license to operate a steamboat. Believe it or not, folks, that, that was the case. Well, isn't it fair to say that licensure had to come at some point? Well, let's find out now. Let's go to 1852. Congress enacts the Steamboat Act, which came about from multiple disasters over a six-year span from 1847 to 1852 that, had, that were the result of boiler explosions. You know, 
appliances inside a boat have a mind of their own. Boilers have a mind of their own. And think about this too, folks. At one time, we didn't have such things as inspections. So, hey, for all any passenger could have known, he or she might as well have been getting on a boat whose boilers probably were outdated or whose boilers were probably on the brink of um, blowing up. You know, boilers or any other appliance doesn't last forever. At some point, they're going to give out. And yes, there are instances where we don't have control over it. But isn't it fair to say that um, all appliances, like our AC heater unit, our cars, they all need inspections. Because without inspections, how do we know that they're still safe? So, in 1852, Congress enacted the Steamboat Act, which came about from a six-year period from 1847 to 1852 from multiple disasters that were um, the result of boiler explosions. And under this law, um, the, the, the legislation um, made it mandatory for hydrostatic testing. What is hydrostatic testing? Well, I, I looked that up. It has to do with uh, checking levels for strength and leaks most notably in such devices as pipelines, boilers, gas cylinders. Did you hear that, folks? Boilers? Boilers on steamboats? Pipelines could be on steamboats as, as well, too. But the reason why it's imperative for these mandatory hydrostatic uh, test measures to go in play is because inspectors need to know the strength levels on the vessels and they need to know if any leaks are imminent. This will help prevent or rather I should say reduce the further increase in boiler explosions. The Steamboat Act also required pilots and engineers to be licensed. Ah, did you hear that now folks? Finally, some this uh, act does provide some good common sense um, what do you call it, common sense protocol by means of licensing all pilots and engineers. Because it's one thing to say, oh, I'm an engineer. Oh, really? Well, do you have your uh, license? Because without a license, how do I know that you're an engineer? Without a license, how do I know that you are certified and qualified to uh, command this uh, steamboat? So, the Steamboat Act required pilots and engineers to be licensed by local inspectors. This act marked the start of legislation leading to federal inspection service. Now, let's forward uh, to almost 20 years after. Let's go to 1871, six years after the Civil War ends. What agency was first created in 1871 and still remained around come the time of this um, deadly storm of 1913. The Steamboat Inspection Service. This agency, um, its mission sought to protect crewmen's lives, including their properties along the waters. Properties being like their vessels. Now, you would think with all this uh, legislation... Think about it, 1838 going into 1913, 75 years after the first um, piece of congressional legislation involving maritime safety had gone into play. You would think 
in the aftermath of the 1913 storm that countless um, sweeping measures to improve things so that another storm like this wouldn't happen again would have in fact taken place. That is a major sweeping reform. It turns out that not many major changes came about in the aftermath of the storm's wrath. The Steamboat Inspection Service failed to comply with board inquiry findings regarding hatch clamps be required to hold wooden hatch covers intact. What's going on here, folks? I don't know. Because think about this, many captains admitted that they lost one or more covers during the storm's duration. So it might be fair to say that there were captains who wanted um, hatch clamps to be required to hold wooden hatch covers. Well, shoot, if a captain wants to do that, then he has the right to do it. But why isn't the steamboat inspection service going along? I don't know. It's unfortunate. Well, if that's awkward enough, the Lake Carriers Association, and I'll talk more about this one here um, in a short while, but the Lake, the Lake Carriers Association was against measures requiring radios on cargo vessels. Don't you find that a little absurd? <laughs> I do. I'll tell you all more about that, about the reasons behind that here shortly. And in 1914, there is some good news in terms of a major change, the Weather Bureau began broadcasting forecasts. Well, we're not far here uh, from wrapping it up, folks, but, um, but let's uh, find out some more. If anybody had learned valuable lessons from November's Fury in 1913, it was none other than the Weather Bureau. Considering the organization itself began broadcasting weather forecasts one year after the infamous disaster. Sadly, captains and crews aboard many vessels didn't like live weather broadcasting. How in the world would you not like live weather broadcasting? Don't you want to be informed right away of what is about to change? Don't you want to be informed right away knowing that wind direction has changed? My gosh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that the uh, Weather Bureau uh, could not um, understand why wind direction changed so rapidly. Now, given that there has been improvement being a year after, I don't know um, just how accurate the uh, Weather Bureau has it now with wind direction, but they're working on it. So it really is a shocker that that the um, that many of the captains and crews among the vessels did not like live weather broadcasting. Why not? Because it interfered with their job assignments, most notably delivering commerce, but also fearing that shipping companies would spy on them. Is it fair to say that maybe some captains and their crewmen were fearful of the companies they worked for? Perhaps. Think about it. The comp if the company officials were listening in, they would probably know right away, uh-oh, if the crew and 
if the entire crew now realizes that a storm's coming, they're going to notify us and say, uh-oh, we can't deliver the products, or if we can deliver them, it's going to be later than expected. There still remain tension amongst um, the shipping industry versus the Weather Bureau. But for those people in the Weather Bureau, their job was one that constantly involved new learnings. And fortunately enough, passenger ships were smart enough to take the initiative behind installing radios where 24-hour communications became mandatory, especially in the wake from two years before when RMS Titanic had sunk along the North Atlantic Ocean on the night of April 15, 1912, two and a half hours after striking an iceberg. Prior to the Titanic sinking, folks, um, ships um, navigating the waters of the North Atlantic Ocean, they didn't always have to have their radios on 24-7. Of course, Titanic received 21 ice warnings. That should have been enough of a warning to... Realize that, look, you either need to change your direction, you need to slow down and not be going at maximum speed of 21 knots. You know, that, that to me would have, set, would have given me enough warning to realize that, hey, maybe we need to not be playing with fire and, and get the pencil, how do you say, it? get this notion out of our head and realize that, hey, maybe we're not as immune as we had been previously. In other words, this is our maiden voyage, and here we've been talking about how the ship is unsinkable. 21 ice warnings. I think it's fair to say that no ship is unsinkable, but sadly, um, one of the biggest, um, one of the biggest uh, changes that w was made, and it sadly had to take a disaster like Titanic, was that um, it became mandatory for all ships um, navigating uh, the ocean's waters to have 24-hour uh, communication system in play, and of course, an ice the national um, the International Ice Patrol Committee was established too, which over which oversaw um, missions where um, with uh, ice cutter ships uh, whose purpose was to um, break up ice and advise of, of icebergs in the uh, vicinity, just like uh, ships, regular ships would have done so along the waters, warning one another of uh, ice fields that lied ahead. Well, natural forces will always contribute to a storm in its magnitude, which did indeed play out along Great Lakes waters in 1913, but mankind himself isn't immune from a storm's fury. When mankind doesn't adhere to warnings, big or small, his sense of pride becomes unchecked, meaning he gets a superstition in him that nothing can stand within his objectives. However, one element will never leave mankind when journeying along mammoth bodies of water, like the Great Lakes, being Mother Nature. Nature has, and always will have, the final say over what happens to mankind, which just so happened for four days from November 7th to the 10th of 1913 along the Great Lakes. And as we know uh, that four of the five Great Lakes endured the most damage. But the bottom line is that no matter how much damage vessels sustain, 
no matter how big or small the loss of life is, when mankind doesn't adhere to, the, to Mother Nature's warnings, mankind plays with fire. Mankind loses respect for what Mother Nature for what Mother Nature herself can do. So it's fair to say that the most um, awe-inspiring force on planet Earth is Mother Nature. We may not always like what she does, but in the end she will prevail. And no matter how sophisticated the technology is, and while, yes, technology has improved drastically, and it is a blessing to know that, that no other ship has sunk since 1975 along Great Lakes waters, there still has to be an element that must always be respected, and that is Mother Nature. Because no matter how, how many times a captain and his crew go out into the waters of the Great Lakes in November, nothing is ever certain. The skies of November will always be gloomy. And, and, and in other words, with nothing ever being certain, that means that no matter how frequently your luck, no matter how frequent your luck has been from times past and going out in, into the waters in November, there will always be that one time when, when it's not meant to be. And it just so happened that it was bad enough that a storm happened, but a storm that happened over four days and the loss of life, and to this day being the uh, deadliest of storms along the Great Lakes, it should serve as a reminder that man is not the most powerful um, force on this planet. It is Mother Nature. Well, thank you for your time, and this has been a great um, series. I, um, I'm glad that all of you who have been listening um, enjoyed this one. I don't know where our, um, our course of direction will take us next um, when I'm on the air, but I do know that when I'm on the air next, we will be discussing a new uh, book topic series. And I know that no matter what the topic will be, you all will be there, and you all, and I know that you all will enjoy it. So thank you uh, for being such ardent listeners. Without you all, I don't know where I would be. But continue to listen, continue to learn, continue to get the word out to others. Thank you for your time, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. Take care.